0: Let's start again. As every working with children's check that is required for anyone to work with a child or a teenager reminds us that people do unspeakable things to innocent young ones. We want to say to hell with them and to hell with it all. As Ukraine and Russia continue to face off and as China looks pretty scary right now and Israel-Palestine, who knows how that's going to go. It's a total mess, isn't it? We want to say to hell with it all. We're fed up with war. And as the world produces enough food to feed itself, but millions go hungry each day, we want to say to hell with it all. Let's start again. And of course, the problem isn't just out there, but in here, our gossip, our greed, our godlessness, our immorality, immaturity, and inwardness, our jealousy, judgmentalism, and just not caring about others. We want to say to hell with it all, but we stop. Because when we say to hell with it all, we realize we're really saying to hell with me too. And that was the problem in Noah's day. They were eating and drinking and marrying without a care in the world or a care for the world. Our our gentleman who read the Bible for us. Sorry, I don't know your name, brother. Uh, He is right. This is the start of us not caring for the world and the climate change we see ourselves in now. And that is the reason for God's judgment. God knows that you and I are part of the problem. So while we may say to hell with it all, God actually has the power to do something about it. He not only feels regret, but in the days of Noah, he did something about it. At the flood, we see that God does not permit suffering and evil to go on in his world forever. And he will once again, one day, say to hell with it all. He will judge us like he did in the days of Noah, which leads secondly to our second point. Uh, God's judgment has a reality. I've lost the power to do that. Could you press the button for us? Is that all right? Thank you. Excellent. It will say God's judgment has a reality. Thank you. Because after God sees our sin, and uh, he feels regret for having made us, and when God regrets or repents, As always with God, we have to use human words to understand something that's very unhuman and unlike us. Therefore, they're always limited. They always have a a frail capacity. Like when we call God Father, we're not trying to capture the worst elements of fathers, but the best. And therefore, it's always going to be imperfect. I put it like this sometimes. It's like us trying to describe God with human words is like two frogs trying to describe a human just using the word ribbit. It's never going to... It's never quite going to get the job done, so you have to do the best with what you can. So when it says God regrets or repents, it's not that he, 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 he thinks, oh, no, I've made a mistake, I need to change. No, it's not a change of mind, but a change now of action. And so deeply troubled over the rebellion of his beloved creations, now in verse 6, now God decides to act and to judge mankind. He says in verse 17, he's going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. And so the great springs of the deep burst forth and the floodgates of heaven are opened. The rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Over 10 times during the account of Noah, it stipulates that every living creature will perish. Everything with breath in its nostrils will die. Everything will be wiped out. Now, whether you consider that to be a global whole ball that we're currently living on kind of flood, or whether the earth means the earth in which they're living a bit like if there was a flood in the western suburbs, we'd say, oh, everything's flooded. We don't actually mean everything, just the world that we live in is flooded. Uh, whichever way it is, whichever way you consider me to be a heretic, I'm open to, be, to both. But whatever it is, it's an absolute disaster. The apostle Peter says that Noah was a preacher. And so he says that uh, uh, he, Noah would have told those about, around about the flood to come. How else could he explain the ridiculous size boat that he was building in his backyard and a constant trip to Bunnings? And so, after a few days of non stop rain, as the roads turned to rivers, and as the streams turned to estuaries, and the lakes turned to seas, the people would have known what was to come because Noah was a preacher as they headed for high ground. And as the last piece of earth is covered, and all the forced to swim in the water infested and infected with rotting corpses they would have known what was to come because noah was a preacher and at the last as they try and stay afloat and the agonizing cramp sets in and they gasp their last breath they would have known what was to come everything on earth was wiped out that is the reality of god's judgment Well, many may say, and and we may have a bit of this ourselves, how can we believe in a God who judges? To which the Christian needs to say, how can you not believe in a God who judges? Because without God's judgment, there's no hope. There's no hope of good prevailing. There's no hope of those who are to blame being held accountable. There's no hope of victims being comforted with justice. If God does not exist, then evil will always exist. But a God of judgment means a day of judgment, and therefore a day of justice. And so we can rejoice. Good will prevail. And with this God, the punishment always fits the crime. Uh, We trust our justice system more or less, don't we? If we hear that someone has gone away for 30 years, we suspect they've done one of the major crimes that we consider in our society. It's not that they overstayed their three-hour welcome down at Cottesloe car park. That would be well out of whack, wouldn't it? That you were there three hours, one minute, and suddenly you're away for 30 years. No, when we hear someone's gone away for 30 years, we know it's one of the big ones. Because the punishment fits the crime, even if we don't know what the crime is. Well, God, can we afford him the same generosity we give our broken justice system? So when God wipes out every creature on earth, that's how bad the crime is. Not that he's some out of whack, uncontrollable, angry God, but that That's the disaster we are in, because that's the disaster we cause. The punishment fits the crime. Well, what is the punishment for us? If God's judgment is a reality, what is the punishment for us? Well, the rainbow later on in the story promises that it won't be a flood again. So what will the reality be for us? The Apostle Paul calls it the wrath to come. The Apostle John calls it a burning lake of fire. Peter says it's a destruction. Jesus' brother James just calls it death. But Jesus, the most loving man to ever live, calls it hell. Jesus talks about hell more than any other character in the Bible and more than any other topic. Of his 40 or so parables, over half are about hell. Again and again and again, Jesus warns of a judgment to come, like Noah would have as a preacher. He says it will be like in the days of Noah. That's what Jesus says. It will be like in these days. Two men will be at work. One will be taken and saved. The other left. He says two women will be preparing dinner for the family. One will be taken. The other left. Now, do you think Jesus warns us of hell despite his love for us or because of his love for us? And as Jesus calls at a place of torment where an everlasting fire will burn forever and worms will eat us forever, Jesus calls it now to darkness and a loneliness that will never be consoled or comforted. Jesus is clear, the flame never goes out. That's the reality of God's judgment. And that's what Jesus saves us from. Then not you love him just a little bit more because of it? How, how much more precious would the ark have been when Noah sees just quite how severe the flood is? Uh, before, as he's putting all the wood and hammer and nails together, he he would have thought this is fine, but I, I don't really see the point. It, it might maybe kind of useful. It's kind of at a big outdoor shed. I can use it for for some other things, and I'm getting kind of handy with, uh, with the with a little Allen key that IKEA provides. <laughs> but when the floodwaters come, he would have said, "This thing is so precious to me. I cannot live without it. It it will consume my every living." And so with us as we consider what God's judgment is and the punishment fits the crime How much more precious Jesus is to us? For we now know what debt it is that he has paid for us The old welsh preacher in london uh, dr. martin lloyd jones used this illustration Uh, Because in those days uh, back in the 60s and 70s you, You used to know your postman your postman was your village postman. Everybody knew him yeah, the same you know, he was his grandfather was the postman to your grandfather. It just this guy was always there and you had a relationship with him and you could often put your post in your mailbox, he'd pick it up. And if a postage stamp wasn't quite enough for a parcel to get to your house, he'd still bring it and say, Hey look, it was just five P short. Would you mind just giving me five P and and that's the kind of way it went. You knew your postman. Uh, And if there was a a debt to be paid for the postage, someone will pay it. So imagine uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, you've gone out for for just an hour or so, and a friend of yours is at home making a cup of tea for you. And when you get back from your little trip, your friend says to you, hey, while you're away, someone came knocking with a debt, and I've paid it for you. Now, how you react to your friend depends on how big the debt is, doesn't it? If all they've done is say, look, Auntie Bethel has sent you your birthday card. She was 3p short, and I've paid that 3p for you. You'd say, thanks, that's great. Would you like a biscuit with the cup of tea that you've now made? Because it's only 3p. But if your friend says to you, someone came knocking where you were out. It was the tax man. You haven't paid in 50 years. And they came for everything. For everything, for your whole life. But I've paid that for you. Don't worry. That's different. (laughs) That's more than a biscuit that you consider this person worth. In fact, there's nothing you can pay them back with. You just live your life in worship and adoration of what they have done. And so when we consider the reality of God's judgment, we find a sweetness in Christ that is available nowhere else when we see quite what it is that he has saved us from. Imagine you've got a friend who's uh, just been swimming down at Cottesloe. And they come back and say, do you know what? The lifeguard saved me. I say, oh, what from? He says, well, I came out of the water and I had a little bit of seaweed in my hair. And it just, I could not bear it if I was walking around Cottesloe Beach with a bit of seaweed in my hair. And he came up and said, you just got a bit of seaweed in your hair. Say, oh, thank goodness you've saved me. There's no way I could have lived with such the shame. But if your friend says, the lifeguard saved me, say, from what? well there was as there has been known to be a huge shark swimming in the waters and he dived in and got rid of the shark by being i'm stretching the illustration here eaten in my place your whole life would be impacted and influenced by the love of that lifeguard for you and so that is why we need to consider the story of Noah for the reality of God's judgment shows us how much how deep how wide is the love of Christ for us in paying our debt, in dying in our place, in taking our hell. Because finally we see God's judgment has a rescue. God's judgment has a rescue we see in chapter 8. Hey, when, when we tell stories in the Western world, the way we our tradition has brought us up with is, is a beginning, a middle, and an end. So there were three little piggies, they all go build a house, the wolf tries to blow them down, the one with the bricks, they're fine. That's how we do it, beginning, middle, and end. But in the ancient Hebrew way of telling stories, the punchline wasn't at the end, but in the middle. Our stories are a bit like a beach walk. You start, you walk, you get to the point where you are and you have a cup of tea. But their stories are more like walking up Bluff Knoll: You go up, you get to the point of the walk at the, po- at the pinnacle at the top, you admire the view, and then you come down basically the same route with slightly different viewpoints on the way down. Fancy word to show off in a Bible study. It's called a chiasm. And that's where the main point of the story is. And we see that in the story of Noah. The main point is not really the rainbow at the end or the olive branch, but here is how the story of Noah goes. We're going to see the the, the same viewpoint at the start and the end, and we're going to see the pinnacle in the middle. So the start of the story in chapter 6, verse 10, it talks about Noah and his family, and it does uh, again at the end. Uh, this isn't working. Oh, there we go. It's a slightly strange size. So underneath there, it should say 9 verse 17, Noah and the family, uh, and there's a flood in the future. They enter the ark, they leave the ark. Then chapter 7, 17, it talks about 40 days. Then there's 40 days. The numbers are all there on purpose. And then the waters go up and then the waters go down. And we're getting to the middle of the story, the, the view from the top of Bluff Knoll, there's 150 days of water. Then straight away afterward, there's 150 days of water. See, it's all building towards a central point, And what is it? It's that God remembered Noah. That's the view from Bluff Knoll. That's the view at the top that we've done all this hard work to get to. See, there seems no hope for the human race, but God remembered Noah. It's the pinnacle of the story, the main point. In the middle of all this corruption and violence and sexual immorality, God chooses one family to save. And that man found favor with God. He is a righteous man who's blameless. And lots of chapter six is devoted to the architectural plans for this large floating zoo. But it centers around God and what he is doing. His big promise, his covenant is the fancy word for it. His promise that he will rescue him. Without God remembering Noah, without this covenant, without the ark, there would be no hope for him at all. God remembered Noah. And we have to remember that as devastating as the destruction in Noah's day is, as devastating as the story in the end of the Bible is, that there will be a day of judgment, we have to remember that that our actions arouse God's anger. But our actions never arouse his love. His love is always there. His mercy, his justice, his compassion is always there. We never arouse it. His anger, though, isn't always present. We arouse it with our actions. And so that's why this is actually, even though the story is one of massive devastation and destruction, the point is is that God always loves. Even though we've aroused him to anger, rightly so. That God remembers Noah. Well, if our judgment is as real as Noah's, what then is our art? What is the method by which we are saved in the flood waters of destruction? Well, it is, of course, Jesus. As he hangs on the cross and cries out, "It is finished," He becomes an ark into which we are saved from the flood waters to come. Not that he brings judgment, but that Jesus bears judgment. and he takes on the flood, the judgment, the, the hell we all deserve. This is our rescue from judgment. This is our ark into which we climb. And there would have been some in Noah's day, would there not? Who laughed at Noah, foolishly building a boat. And even when Noah warned them of the flood to come and, and begged them, join me in the ark, there's room for more. And the lions are securely tucked away. Don't worry, they won't, you won't be lunch. You can imagine some saying, a flood, don't worry, I'll swim if that ever happens. I'll hop in the ark on my deathbed, they may say. I've been to ark building school, I'll be okay. I'll be all right when the floods comes. My parents know lots about arks and they raise me as an archaeologist. I guess that's what an archaeologist, I've never. <laughs> I'll be okay, I've got this, they may say. I'll. And those words would have haunted them as they sunk down into the waters of their, of their death. Chapter eight makes it clear. The ark is the only way that you survive. Only on the ark do people walk off. 150 days later, they didn't walk off and bump into some other people who also made it another way. It was only in the ark that you were saved. Please don't think that you'll be all right on your own. We cannot swim. The only answer is the ark saved me from God's judgment. That's the only way. And for us, the cross is the only way to be saved, it's the only thing that will float when God's judgment comes on the earth again. So how are you saved from God's judgment? I know my temptation is always to start with an I. I will do this. I have done that. But I just won't cut it. I have faith. No, I'm raised a Christian. No, I got it. No, I repented. I this, I that. That's not the answer that works. It certainly didn't in those days and it went in this. There's a preacher called Alistair Begg, a Scottish guy in the States, who had a preach that went something like this that says it very helpfully. He says, think about the thief on that cross. I can't wait to find that fellow one day, Alistair Begg says. And ask him, how did it shake out for you? Because you were there cussing the guy out with your friend. And you've never been to church. You've never been to Bible study. uh, You don't know a thing about uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Nehemiah, you've never read it. Jeremiah, don't know the difference. But you made it. How did you make it? The angel must have said as he walks up uh, to the gates. You know, uh, how did you make it? And the thief on the cross says, I don't know. (laughs) What do you mean you don't know, says the angel? I don't know. Uh, Excuse me, says the angel, let me just get my supervisor. And then the supervisor angel comes over with a clipboard and says, so just a few questions for you. First of all, what's your... What's our doctrine of justification before we let you in. I just want to quiz you on that. Uh, and have you been to many Bible studies? And, and the thief on the cross just says, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. What, what do you mean? And says, well, ha, ha, have you read your Bible every day? Have you done that and this? Uh, how about that? Have you done your quiet times? Do you pray much? And, and the thief on the cross was just staring. And eventually the, the supervisor in frustration says, on what basis are you here? thief on the cross just says the man on the middle cross said i could come and that's it there's only one way to be saved from the reality of god's judgment and it's not on your own we cannot swim and what is it that the thief on the cross said to jesus remember me just like god remembered Noah, he said remember me when you come into your kingdom That's all Noah had to do to be saved was to be remembered by God. That's all the thief on the cross had to do was to be remembered by Jesus. That's all we have to do today. Just say, dear God, please remember me. Noah and his family, I bet they had questions. I bet they had doubts. (laughs) I bet they felt foolish. I bet they were laughed at. But I bet when the first raindrops fell, none of that mattered. I bet when the Dove came back with olive branch, and they knew that peace with God was restored. That great symbol that is used by the UN and many others to display peace in this world, the desire for peace in this world now, none of that would have mattered. And today, the storm clouds are gathering on the horizon. We do not know when the rains will fall. Trust in Jesus. Ask him to remember you. Well, that, of course, is the most immediate and obvious response to God's judgment. But what if we're already a Christian? Someone saying, like the thief on the cross, the man on the middle cross, he said I could come, that's all. Well, the response from Matthew 24, verse 37 is clear. Therefore, Jesus says, keep watch. If one is taken and the other left, like in the days of Noah, keep watch. Keep watch over ourselves, Jesus says, that we don't drift away from the ark. Keep watch for the lie that says that wealth matters. Keep watch for a desire for a special relationship and sexual intimacy that doesn't split our allegiance between the ark and the floodwaters below. So we need to keep watch over ourselves together as a church. Keeping watch. Someone hasn't been here for a couple of weeks? Keep watch. They could have been on holiday. That's great. Rejoice with them and welcome them back when they come. But it could be that we need to keep watch for each other and give others permission to do the same. Keep watch. You can imagine everyone in Noah's family needing each other at some time or other to keep watch so they don't desert the boat. They have to reassure each other, when the rain comes, my popularity won't, won't matter one bit, so to keep watch, stay on the boat. And another response to God's judgment is surely to be telling others about the story of Noah, telling people there is something coming in the future that needs action now. Yet how often we talk about heaven without hell, or Jesus without judgment. Just imagine Noah showing some friends around the ark after a dinner party one night. And uh, Noah and his wife and these friends are, are um, showing off uh, the ensuite bedroom he's made for his wife. Lo- lo- lovely walking wardrobe for her to change her outfit every day and things. And, and the extra tall uh, enclosure for the giraffes and the extra in- enforced one for the lions, because otherwise all that would walk off the ark in chapter 8 would just be two really fat lions. Uh, and that's a really disappointing uh, ark. Uh, and as they're walking around, a friend says, why, why are you doing all this, Noah? Seems, seems a little odd. And Noah says, oh, it just makes intellectual sense to me. Or I was brought up in an ark-building family. It's just what we've always done. Or having an ark just makes me feel happy and safe inside. And afterwards, you can imagine Noah's wife, as they did the washing up from their dinner party, saying, hey, why didn't you just tell them about the flood? It would have made a lot more sense. And Noah says, well, I want it to sound relevant. I, I didn't want to offend. No, the ark only makes sense if there's a flood. Jesus only really makes sense if there's a judgment. And so we tell people about Jesus because of judgment. Even if offense is taken, it means it will always be relevant. Now, in the right way, so that they'll hear it, so that they'll listen, so that they'll believe and be remembered. What the Noah story really is telling us in chapter 8 is that Noah is no longer just a guy. Which means that we're no longer just students or just an accountant or just married or just retired or just going out or just popping home for the weekend or just seeing some friends or just playing sport or just going for a walk or just going to church or just on holidays because we're no longer just doing anything because our lives aren't about just any old thing. When we see that all around our Mortal people who have an immortal destiny, one that goes forever. Everything we do counts. We don't have to do evangelism. We get to do it. We get to do it. We get to be involved in the task and privilege of persuading people to get on the boat. There's a flood coming. Jesus will remember you. And he always loves to save. And he's the only way. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts long and lean towards ourselves to thinking that we are enough, that we could swim, that we don't need a flood, that we're good. Please help us to ignore our hearts, to listen to your word, to know that Jesus is enough, that he is good, and longs for us to be remembered by him, that we would be saved. And help us, Lord, when we're nervous this week, when we have an opportunity to just share a little bit about what we've learned in church with someone we know and love, or don't know, but want to love. Help us to be bold by your Spirit. Fill us with your Spirit that we may tell them that all they need to do is for God to remember them, and they will be saved. Amen.